We are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 9. And we pick it up from where last week we saw Solomon dedicating the temple. After being in the promised land for some four or five hundred years, the children of Israel had their central place of worship. King David, the great king, stepped in eternity. His son Solomon was led by the Lord to build the temple. It took seven years. It's an amazing feat. God has given him wisdom beyond measure. In fact, there's no one as wise as Solomon that ever lived other than Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth. And so we're back now on Solomon, and we go forward on Solomon's life. So we read about things that really encompass his life from about like the age of 20 to 30-ish in that range. And tonight when we pick it up, we we pretty much get the rest of his life. And right away we get him what would be about his mid-40s. And we just go forward from there with this great King Solomon, the third king of Israel, and the son of David. Around 950 B.C. is the timeline we're looking at here for the nation of Israel, the people of covenant in relationship with God in the Old Testament. Chapter 9, verse 1. And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, that's his own house and some other projects that we read about in the last chapter, and all of Solomon's desire, which he had wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your supplication that you've made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you've built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandment and my statutes, which I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, have embraced other gods, and worshipped and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. So yet again, you know, the first time God appeared to Solomon in the dream, it was, what would you like me to do for you? And Solomon asked for wisdom, and God gave him the wisdom, plus things he didn't ask for, a good, healthy life, financial prosperity, all that kind of stuff. But here the second time, it's more like reminding him of the accountability of being the king and being under covenant with God on behalf of the people for the nation of Israel. David, his father, was a shepherd and had a heart for God's people like a shepherd. And it served him really well. And God said he had a heart for the Lord. And he had a heart for God's people. Solomon's a little different. We see in his life, he's the smartest guy in the room and can solve riddles and enigmas and stuff like that. But we don't really ever see Solomon. We see he is sincere with the Lord. But even as an administrator and a king, we don't see the same kind of things with Solomon that we saw in David. And as we go through some of his things tonight, we'll catch on to that, the distinction between him and David and just working with people and stuff like that. Solomon was a builder, and David was David was about the people. Solomon was more about the buildings, and that's just. And David was more about singing songs of praise, and Solomon was more about writing proverbs of intellect 
for the human experience. And that's the distinction of the two. And God was with them both. And in their differences, we are blessed with the Bible. They have all those Psalms and all those Proverbs from David and Solomon. But he's definitely not his father. He's a different guy. So he gets the exhortation and warning to stay on track or it'll all go wrong. That's the exhortation and warning the children of Israel got at Mount Sinai 500 years before. That's the warning they got with Joshua before they went into the promised land. That's the warning they got from Joshua when he stepped into eternity. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's no shadow of turning with the Father of lights. It's the consistency. So there's lots of blessings, but the blessings are in the obedience and the word of God working properly. And that's would apply to every generation before Solomon and every generation after Solomon. Solomon is being reminded right now, hey, you're under covenant. I'm going to bless this worship place. It's consecrated, set apart, like maybe this sanctuary tonight. Or again, we talked about this before with the building of the temple. This isn't the limited place of the Lord's presence like the temple was for Israel, but still it's our central place of worship. So we like to think that God does consecrate and sanctify our services with the worship and the teaching and these things, and that his heart would be with us when we gather here and his eyes would be upon us when we gather here, right? Like, we want that for every true local church that believes the gospel and believes his word and invites the Lord to fill their their house of worship like we just had with the worship with Jeff and now opening the word of God because the word of men doesn't mean anything. The word of God means everything. And so, yes, we can agree in principle with that, but again, there's an accountability for me, for all of us, as to who we, who we are when we go forward in our life in the New Testament sense of obedience, consecration. Because he said of the temple, I've consecrated this house. And we see in the New Testament that the church is to be sanctified, believers in their walk. So those things are consistent. Now, something that gets our attention early on in the first verse, it says that when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time. Solomon, this is 24 years after he became king, approximately. Most, if you look at the scriptures, you, you put it in about, he's, he's probably in his mid-40s at this point. And we all understand there's a big difference between a, a young man at 20 and a young man in his mid-40s, because he's not a young man anymore. And it's the same with women, right? Women are this when they're 20, they're this when they're 45. We, we know there's a, that's a big chunk of land, a timeline, and that we want to be growing and progressing. And for a lot of people, like, for example, my dad was a career Marine. He was ROTC in college and then at University of Wisconsin. Then he fully joined the Marine Corps, served in the Korean War, was a career Marine, served in the Vietnam War, and he served in the Marine Corps for 22 and a half years. He got out of the Marine Corps right about this age, right about 45, when we lived there in Carlsbad in 1975. I went to his whole thing as Lieutenant Colonel, the big parade for him at Camp Del Mar there on the right side of the freeway when you're going south, right before Side Harbor. Is a military career. My dad has, still has great benefits from being in the military, retirement benefits. He's 92. And, you know, when you take a bullet for the team and you just you give that, there's good benefits more than most of us would get. So praise the Lord for that. And we honor that with, with veterans in, in that way. So, but that was a career. And my dad had to re, redo, like when he got on the Marine Corps, what's he going to do? Well, he ended up being a, a teacher at Miracosa Junior College, a professor teaching U.S. government, U.S. history, which was his natural interest. And he had a landscaping business. My dad had his own landscaping business for almost 30 years, where he just had his own gig, had his accounts, did his deal, and he let me work for him when I needed extra cash, as well as my sister and my brother. Everyone did landscaping, the three kids with my dad. 
you think about this so often mid-40s can be a time where you say like well what, what am I really doing am I happy with where I'm at what I'm doing again Jeremy Foster who was here for years as our associate pastor taught science at Calvary schools there at Calvary Chapel down the road here and was a soccer coach and all those things right about early 40s he was thinking where am I going with everything and what do I really want to do and where do I really want to live and so Jeremy had that degree in civil engineering from Oregon State and for two years he refreshed himself with all of his education got caught up on the new modern softwares and then he looked for jobs and he they wanted to live somewhere with more than four seasons and they end up in Boise and he's got a great job using his civil engineering degree mid-40s is not a midlife crisis but there is something about the mid-40s where for example too if you're a pro athlete even the best of Tom Brady at 45 it's like he's on the clock right like pro athletes are generally well Kelly Slater's a freak he's still going to 50 but don't that's just an asterisk so don't put too much there on that that happens once in a millennial or something but so often we see with even pro athletes that when they complete their careers, 95% are broke within three years after finishing their careers. That's the statistic on pro athletes for the NBA, Major League Baseball, and NFL. It's, it's over 90%, the most recent statistics on that. It's just unfortunate, but you have this whole life, and you're doing this, and all of a sudden, it's like, what do you do? And we talk about this, Michael Jordan, what do you do? Like, well, he's going to golf, he's going to maybe own a sports team, he's going to do underwear commercials. What, like, what, like, what do you do? It's an interesting thing. So I'm kind of, ha- when I look at this, I think it was cool that the Lord appeared to Solomon when he's 45, but the tricky part is he's accomplished all of his heart's desire. Did you catch that phrase? He's accomplished all of his heart's desire. Every goal he had, he's accomplished. He built everything. He did everything. He, in 20 years, he just did what, like, he's like these guys on like Facebook or Twitter or Meta or whatever, like Bezo and these guys. He's, he's just, he's just, no one's surpassed him beforehand and in Israel, no one surpassed him afterwards. He just, he's that guy. And he's, he's 45-ish, and he's super wealthy. He's worth billions. And he's accomplished what was the burning desire of his heart. He's accomplished it. And that's when the Lord appears to him, to remind him that they're not done yet. And to remind him that you don't, you can have a retirement party, but you don't have a retirement from life. You don't just go on vacation just because you've accomplished all those things. One of the most challenging things we find in life is when you've accomplished great things, the things you really want to do with your life. Sometimes it's really hard to reboot where you go from there. I mean, for me, after all my career as a pro surfer, I had a really hard time after winning the Pipe Masters. I mean, of course, I had the attempted suicide. I just, I tried this. I was going to run the pro tours. I was going to run these pro contests. I was going to work for the surf magazines. I, I was just like, it wasn't even close. Nothing was even close to the desire I had from the time I was 12 to be king of the pipeline. I, I was like, what? I don't even know. It took Jesus saving me and putting his kingdom in my heart and desire to serve him to turn that around and give me a passion for life again. So I relate to this, and maybe you can tonight. Maybe you, right now, you're here listening to me, and you're like, man, I accomplished pretty much what I set out to do, and now I'm kind of like, I don't know really where I want to go from here, or you had a dream, it didn't come to pass, or you got a divorce, you got these different things that happened. I was like, where do I even go? Like, how do I reboot this? Well, the Lord spoke to Solomon and reminded him of the importance of staying on track to be faithful and obedient to the things we do know. So even if you don't know what's next, we know we want to be obedient and faithful to the things we know. And my wife and I were talking about this text earlier today. And Solomon was what he's doing 
But God's about who you are in your doing. Over 20 years ago, I remember being a big Calvary, and there's a woman there that helped out with Worship Generation, Kathy Bowers. And uh, I, I was talking about the vision for the bands and all the things we were doing, and she just subtly, in her wisdom, because she's older than me, like a big sister, said, well, it isn't so much what we're doing, but who we're becoming. And I was like, wow, like that... That really resonated with me. Now, years before that, Gail Irwin, the famous pastor, had said to me when we were going to start the church in Vermont, I'm like, I'm just, I, I believe God's in it, but what do we get to Vermont and he's not in it? And Gail Irwin said those famous words to me, it's not where you are, but who you are. God's will isn't so much where you are, but who you are. Because if you're right with the Lord, he'll use you anywhere, but you can build anything you want, your own strength, you're not right with the Lord, doesn't mean anything. So this this is a little indicator because what we find with Solomon as we go forward tonight is in all of his journey, what we'll see, because his life is summarized tonight. Tonight is the summary of his life, the, the legacy of his life. That's what we're getting. And it just, this first verse sets in motion that he had accomplished all of his desires by his mid-40s. He dies at about 60. And he'd accomplished all of his desires at about his mid-40s. And his ending was not good. And we're going to see that it would seem that he focused more on what he was doing as opposed to who he was becoming. And it's really important for us to be reminded tonight that the character work of the Holy Spirit transforming us from glory to glory is far more important than some great thing or monument that could be left in our memory after we're gone. Because God is ultimately preparing the inner woman, the inner man, who we are for all eternity. And we want to be growing in character and integrity in our walk with the Lord. And as I look at my personal goals every day, which I pretty much do, my goals always start with the personal character and the things that I'm working on. Listen more, talk less, you know, kindness, meekness, gentleness, be positive, optimistic, and encouraging. Like just stay in the lane and just just these things I remind myself every single day to make every day the, the use of each day an advancement of eternal equity as opposed to the expelling of temporal losses. Because a lot of people waste every day. But if you're living for the Lord and you're living for people on behalf of the Lord, then every day is an advancement of equity for eternity. What am I doing with my life? Because I'm giving up something today. And it needs, this day I'm giving up something I'm not ever going to have this day again, and neither are you. So am I growing in the character of Christ, and am I, am I investing in things of eternity to dividends and, and returns for all eternity from what I'm expending today, or am I selfish and self-centered and focused on me, 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 and my whole deal, and I'm losing stuff. My stock is dropping. I didn't build my net worth. I lost my net worth, because that's what most people do. I think it's a good idea to every day remind ourselves that the number one thing God is doing in our life is in our life. It's not the what, but the who. And we tend to think about the what am I doing, but we really, if we just let God do the who, the what will just come naturally overflowing from the who. Solomon was what, what he's doing, what he's doing, what he's doing, but really is about who is he becoming, and he didn't become who he needed to be. He did not become who he was meant to be down the stretch because he was, he was focused on the what, 
but not the who. And so we want to go from glory to glory and get better. And I think the great lesson of what we read the rest of tonight is in this first verse that he'd accomplished everything and he just kind of wasn't, just didn't have the mojo for new challenges, new things. And it's, we're going to see stuff that's so impressive on his resume tonight. But it was always the what instead of the who. And John Corson used to say, the famous pastor from Oregon, he, when I ask you how you're doing, don't tell me what you're doing. So like pa- pastors at a pastor conference, hey, how you doing? Oh, we got a women's ministry. We got these women coming. We got a retreat coming up. Oh, man, we're doing the men's thing with John Randall. Oh, we're going to blow up Orange County like there's no tomorrow. No, no, no. I didn't ask you what you're doing. I ask you, how are you doing? See the difference? Yeah, it's an important one. Now we read on. Verse 10. Now we really get some stuff about Solomon, was how he did business and who he was. Verse 10. Now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord, the king's house. Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. Well, that's nice. All your lumber and all your gold to do whatever you want. That's, that's a good... That's, if you're living for temporal, and yeah, that's a good deal. That King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee, which belonged to Israel, not to Lebanon. Okay, so that's worth noting. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these you've given me, my brother? So he called the land uh, Kabul, which means good for nothing, as they are to this day. Then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. So here's a little business deal between Solomon and Hiram. And now they're older, and they do the handshake. And and it's a win-lose, right? It's a win for Solomon, but it's a loss. Like, Hiram doesn't feel good about the deal, but Solomon feels pretty good about it. Like, Solomon gave away something that really belonged to Israel and for all future kings, the northern tribes. And he's giving it to the king of Tyre. That's Lebanon. It's like, what is this? Isn't this a strange passage? But it's a win-lose for sure, because someone feels good and someone doesn't feel good. And, of course, when we're representing Christ... We see people the way Christ sees them. We never want to see people as consumers that we take something from. Now, obviously, there's a time where you're involved in sales and business that you got to make good decisions. And but you know, the the, the Lord, in the end, almost anyone that's uh, anyone that is successful in business will tell you, they talk about benevolent leadership to when you lead a company to be a servant leader. And that's not even for Christians. That's just basic business model these days when you read about business. But in sales, they'll tell you, you ultimately want to win-win. If you leave a trail of what you do in business, win-lose, 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 people aren't going to come back. Like if you sell someone a car, you win, they lose. They're not going to come back to you. They're not going to come back to your dealership. In a recent book I read on uh, managing rental properties, uh, Brandon Turner, that he just said, like, hey, you're always looking for a win-win. Everything's a negotiation, but you want a win-win because if you win at the expense of someone losing, how's that really work in the big picture? Because what we sow is what we reap. And if our legacy is that we win and they lose, we sell them, we give them 20 crummy cities and we get all this wealth and they give it to us like, okay, yeah, we signed the contract. There you go. But how's that feel in your relationship? People are more important than possessions and economics. You want your life to be a win-win for the people you're connected with. You don't want people to walk away from you. That you, Hey, come to church with me. Why would they come to church with you if their involvement with you is a win-lose situation? You won, they lost. See? Like, this is, you see Solomon like, okay, we had a contract. We got it. Okay, we get it. But, you know, and we're not doing business with you again. Verse 15. And this is the reason 
for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it to the ground that's in the south of Israel, Gaza, uh, modern Israel, and had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and had given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife, because remember, Solomon's second wife was the daughter of Pharaoh, political allegiances. And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth Han, Baloth, Tadmor in the wilderness in the land of Judah, all the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his dominion. All the people who are left are the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they're all Canaanites, who are not of the children of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely. From these, Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers, because they were men of war, and his servants and his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots, and his cavalry. Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house which Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Now, three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he built for the Lord. And he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. So he finished the temple. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezon Geber, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And then Hiram, his servants, then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Man, if King Solomon was alive in 2022, he'd be that guy that told you what to do during COVID and there's nothing you could do about it. He's that guy. You see what he's doing? This guy is amazing. Like, so he built these, so these three cities, Gezer, Megiddo, and Hazor, these are key junctions in Israel. He secured his border with military fortresses, solidified them, cavalry, standing army, all this stuff, supply depots for all the wealth of the land. He's built the allegiances. He does what he wants to do. And even with religion, if you will, because don't all presidents go to church? Three times a year, he offered up burnt offerings there. So three times a year, he kind of like did the thing like Christmas and Easter or something like that, or how the Jews were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year. But, you know, I just find it interesting because that's what you can do with Jesus. You can make Jesus three times a year. You can make Jesus religious. If you're about what you're doing instead of who you are and becoming, then you can just do the, oh, we do the offering in January. We do it in May and we do it in October. Yeah, three times a year is what we do. You just do the, you just do the church thing, the religious thing. Three times a year, Solomon's great with the Lord. Actually, he's not great with the Lord at all, but he's doing the religious thing. We can all read this text. If you read this text on your own, in your personal time, you might have a different conclusion looking at it. But when you look at the panoramic of his life, and where we're headed before this night is done. Like, what was he doing three times a year? It was just the business of religion. In my mind, from my perspective, he's doing the business of religion. He's a politician, he's the king, and he's going to do his obligation because that's what kings do, especially like medieval kings with the state churches, Russian Orthodox, Polish Catholics, French Catholics, Prussian Lutherans. Yeah, that's what they do. You got to do the church thing. I mean... Even the Church of England, right? The Queens. I mean, why is there a Church of England? Because the king needed his own church in the Reformation. 
Thus, the Anglican Church exists. The Anglican Church was born out of a king having his own church because he split with the Pope and the Catholics. And that's how it works. You just do your thing. Don't do our thing, right? We're not here on Tuesday night because we're doing that kind of thing. But still, in 35 years of ministry, I've seen a lot of people do this thing. It's what they're doing instead of who they're becoming. And then when it all falls apart, you go like, how did it fall apart? Well, it's because they were doing, they were doing what, what, what? And church was just part of the what. It wasn't Jesus and who they were becoming. You follow me? Yeah. So he's building, but it looks impressive. He's built a fleet. He's got global trade going when people... He's got global trade. Not only has he secured the entire borders of Israel, he's expand, He's doing global trade because the place where they're going with these ships, Ophir, is either the Persian Gulf or India. And once you have a fleet, you can do a lot more things. That's why Peter the Great with Russia in the late 1600s, early 1700s, that's why he spent his entire life building a Russian fleet and it changed them from being a backwoods nation to a first world nation in the world when the, the Danes and the... Vikings and the British and the French and the, the Spanish armadas all existed. He built a fleet. Once you got a fleet of ships, you just change, you change your world. You can you have greater military opportunities, you have greater economic opportunities. Solomon is rolling right here. And he does something three times a year that's is what every good Jewish king should do. I don't I don't know what his heart was at this point. But it just, you're reading all this stuff. And by the way, of course, on the 20, verse 25, we go do this three times a year because that's what all the Israeli kings should do. But when you, when you go from the living water to cisterns of water, like it says in Jeremiah, eventually stored water, it's, it's not the same. See, I have emergency water for the end of the world. <laughs> you just never know what's going to happen. <laughs> but... That water has to be, it gets bad after a while. So you got to have like the chlori- uh, bleach to make it good. And, you know, these 55-gallon drums, you got to dump them like every six months and then rinse them and you refill them. It gets stagnant. But living water, like you live up in Big Bear where, you know, Arrowhead, you got all that fresh water. Like, hey, it's the end of the world. We got fresh water for a while, right? There's a big difference. God used that analogy in the book of Jeremiah that the people had stored up broken cisterns And that's the water they're drinking when he was the living water. So we want the living water, not three times a year, 55-gallon. We had to use that water a couple times. I don't like using that water at all. Living water's better. Fresh water's better. Good water. But three times a year, who knows? But I've seen how other people can do that, and I've seen how I can do that. And we don't want to do that. Chapter 10. Now, when the queen of Sheba, now, when the queen Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, now, Sheba's modern Yemen, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels and bore spices, very much gold. It's always gold. Solomon's got a lot of gold. And precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing too difficult for the king. There was nothing too difficult for the king, and he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, and the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters, their apparel, his cupbearers, his entryway from which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. 
And she just said to the king, it was true, the report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and the prosperity exceed the fame which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are those your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, precious stones, and there never again came such an abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Also, the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almug wood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the almug wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also, harps and string instruments for singers. There was never again came such almug wood, nor the like have been seen in this state. Now, King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity, she turned and went her way to her country and her servants. It's an interesting encounter with the Queen of Sheba. It's interesting in its own right because Solomon had a fame, and as she came and hung out with him, she realized that the words weren't there to even properly describe how great he was and what he had done as this brilliant economic, military, political figure. But it's more significant because Jesus quotes the Queen of Sheba, and talks about the Queen of Sheba. So anytime Jesus references anything we're reading, it's worth noting. So Jesus, when he was talking about his ministry with Israel and being rejected by Israel, he said the Queen of Sheba came from, you know, what is Yemen, to hear wisdom of Solomon, and one greater than Solomon is now here in your midst. So Jesus took this story to tell the people he was presenting himself to the Jews, because the gospel's to the Jew first, then the nations. He's the king of the Jews, crucified on the cross. He's the king of kings coming back with the nations to rule the nations. And he references this. It's in from this text that he says one greater. And what's also interesting about this story is she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. And she's blessing the God of Israel. We don't know what it means or does it mean. Like, did she have faith in God? Did she start reciting the Shema, you know, the Jewish prayer when she went back to Yemen? We don't know. But she does bless the Lord God of Israel. So she's a Gentile coming to Israel to find truth, seek truth. She hears truth, and she blesses God from that truth. So now think about this for us, the church of Jesus Christ. The church was birthed in Jerusalem, and Jesus said we'd be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And he said that the churches go out and preach the gospel to all nations. So here, the nations had to come to Israel to hear the truth and this wisdom. But now, we take, the church takes the truth out to all nations. That's what we do. That we're taking the good news out, like a city on a hill, a, a, a light that can't be put under a lamp. So we have... We, we get to take Jesus, the one wiser than Solomon, the, the one, the embodiment of truth, because he's the way, the truth, and the life. We, that's our great commission. And as we talked about last week with the, when we sin, 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 last chapter, that we're built around the Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, it's who we are, not what we're doing, but because of who we are through Christ and growing in Christ, we have a heart for the nations. We have a heart for the Queen of Sheba and all of her friends worldwide. And we do what we can. 
We have to have a vision. It's so important. If we're truly growing in faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to have a burden for the world. We're going to have a burden for the lost. And even if cultures seem very different than ours or hard to understand, we need to look at them and understand Jesus Christ died for them. And they don't know enough to come here to hear the truth, so we got to go and bring the truth to them so they can hear the truth. And thus we do all that we do with missions and outreach in this church, and thus that's what any Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church should be doing, is having a heart for the lost and taking the, the wisdom of one greater than Solomon, the great gospel message, because the wisdom of God is the power unto salvation. See, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to, uh, to God, and the world sees the, the gospel, the cross, as foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. And so when the gospel goes forth, that wisdom of salvation in the person of the work of Jesus Christ, who he is in us and who he's coming out from us with the message of truth, that he does it. He's drawing the queens of Sheba all, all over planet Earth to himself, to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's exciting. We're almost at 200,000 in missions this year. We're right there. Almost 200,000. Almost. We're at 190. 5,000 went out to Russia today, and 5,000 went out yesterday uh, to India. So we're, do we're doing our part, and to Asia. Randy Crosco, our former deacon, is going to Cambodia, the Philippines, and Vietnam with MMA guys to do all this stuff. So we just sent that gift to him. So we just, our resources, 10 grand went out this week to India, Asia, and Russia, to Russia. That's why we do what we do. That's, you know, we're blessed that we can do that. We don't have a big overhead here. We just have big hearts. And we understand that the church is always a life-saving station above all else. And we can build and we can do this and have all that and build, 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 build. Look, how are you doing? Well, this is what we're doing. We're doing this. No, I'm not asking what you're doing. I'm asking how you're doing. And if Christ isn't thrown in our heart, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna have a heart to take the wisdom that's greater than Solomon to the queens of Sheba all over planet Earth. And that's who we are, and that's what we do at Worship Generation. Now we read on. Verse 14. Solomon's great wealth is a title I got in my Bible over this. I mean, he just, uh, he's, guy, he's that guy. The weight of the gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents. Now, of course, that one, it's the 666, so there's all kinds of thoughts about that one. I don't have any profound insight, I'll just tell you. Anytime I see 666 in the Bible, it does get my attention. Um, I just don't know apart from that. It's the number of man. So this is man with all the gold. And you can find these charts where people try and say, well, Solomon's gold is X amount of billions in our current currency. Well, our currency is changing every month because they just keep giving it away and creating out of nothing. So you can't even give an equivalent. I mean, like, what's 30 trillion on your national debt and what's your 50, 500 billion in the interest you owe on it? It's like... Okay, but gold is real wealth, as is real estate, commodities, and people. So the weight of the gold that came to Solomon was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went in each shield. These were for show. 
These were not for combat at all. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the force of Lebanon. That's one of those houses he built a couple of chapters ago. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps. On the top of the throne was, was around at the back. There were armrests on either side on the place of the seat. Two lions stood beside his armrest, the armrest. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for that was counted like nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had merchant ships at the sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came back bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. He had all the, he's like those guys that have their private zoo, right? So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. So it's not the man, it's what God's doing in him. Each man brought his presents, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, mules, at a set rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king at Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as sycamores, which are in the lowland. Also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Keva. The king's merchants brought them to Keva at the current price. Now, a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver, a horse 150, and thus through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Man, he's, he's an arms dealer. He's just rolling. You know, if you, got, you have more options with money, right? If you got a lot of money, you have more options. Like right now, you can, you know, it's a good time to be buying houses the next year or two cash because the loan rate's over seven now. It's like seven one, and you just, prices are coming down. If you got, whoever's got cash, you have more options. He's just, he's exporting, he's importing, he's just, I mean, it's, again, it's kind of unfair. God gave him all this wisdom. He's so superior to everybody. So, like, you think, like, well, how do these guys, like, the Fortune 500 guys, like, they're, they're creating the image of God, and their brains are super smart, the men and the women, and they're able to figure things out and multiply it and make a ton of money. That's how it works. And they keep growing, so they keep making more money, usually. But sometimes they're not, and they're stupid, and they're, their carnality gets them in trouble, and they lose all their money. But usually the guys that know how to make it know how to make it again. That's kind of how that works, too. Most people that are super rich were broke at least once or twice on the journey. It works that way. And usually one fights over it when they're gone. He even talked about that in Ecclesiastes. But here, we just see the zenith. He's just thriving. Like, he's, I keep saying he's that guy, but he's that guy. They're drinking from gold cups, like gold vessels. Like right now, to actually possess gold, it's hard to find gold. It's hard. It's, you know, even though gold's down on the market, gold is up. Like antiquity gold, it's up, up, up. It's like, bah. Silver's at about 19 on the ounce right now. It hit 50 on the last crisis back in 2011. It hit up to 50 an ounce. Who knows? I just know they're drinking from gold cups. These aren't Target $3. You know, when you walk in, those guys with a floral pattern, four for three bucks. But in the end, what's it matter? We leave it all behind. That's what he says in Ecclesiastes. Now we're going to read on. Chapter 11. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. Ah, here's where it all goes wrong. Ah, this is so, oh my goodness, you're on the cover of Forbes, you're on the cover of everything. Even Rolling Stone. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. Those two words together, 
many and foreign. Right? Just many women, that's not good. Many foreign women, that's very bad for Solomon. As well as the daughter of Pharaoh, that was his second wife, his first wife was a Canaanite, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your heart away, hearts from their, surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Hmm. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart, for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow fully the Lord as did his father David. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Amnon. And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burnt incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David." Boy, you talk about the afterglow of your father. What a blessing for Solomon. Even being chastened, it's less because of who his dad was. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. There's so much here. But Solomon crossed those lines. And once you get two of something, you should only have one chances are it's not going to go good. If one's not enough, two won't be enough, and it's what number is enough? See, the number could be two or a thousand. It doesn't matter. And we, all, we, we understand these things like, for example, with drugs and alcohol. We say this about people who are heroin addicts. Not all people who smoke cannabis become heroin addicts, but almost all heroin addicts started with cannabis. Or you can say with alcohol. Not all people who drank beer before a high school football game became alcoholics, but people who wake up and drink whiskey at 10 in the morning drank beer before a football game when they were teenagers. See, you cross lines that take you to cross other lines, and each line you cross, it weakens and works against you for the things of God. And it, it, it's like kryptonite with Superman, if you know how it is with Superman. It's something that weakens you and takes something from you. Now the Lord forgives us, he cleanses us, and takes us forward. And I think the big distinction with Solomon from the day-to-day struggles we all have with different things the devil throws at us, strongholds that we, that we have disposition for for various reasons in our life, our own decisions, and just how maybe just how growing up, like if you were beaten down verbally for... The, the entire time you're growing up, you're just going to have a hard time believing that God has a future and a hope for you. 
So you're going to always just slide, right? It's going to be easy to slide into a rut that God doesn't have a blessing for you. It's for someone else or the child of a lesser God. These things do affect us, and we have to discipline ourselves and fill our mind. We have to pump our mind full of the right thoughts and the promises, whatever is true, just, noble, praiseworthy, and honorable. We have to put that stuff in all the time because otherwise we just go right in the rut, and we'll have the wrong thinking, and eventually the wrong thinking leads to more wrong actions. So it's super important that it's, it's not that we have sinned it's that what was our objective on the day see let's say you just have a full blow up with your spouse or something or just a whole just really a bad moment at work with some co-workers if you woke up that morning saying like I'm going to work man this is it I've had it and you didn't you just never worked to control your anger then that's really on you in a lot of ways but if you got good thoughts and you're praying for your coworkers and you got the right idea and you're walking with the Lord and you go to work and someone just push, pushes your buttons, that's not what you intended to do. That's not what you intended to do. And I think that's really important to understand because I've been helping people go forward from sin for 35 years, including the person I see in the mirror. And I've just come to realize that the key thing for failure is going forward because you can't change yesterday. The devil loves yesterday. He just loves yesterday. Key thing is going forward, looking up toward Jesus and looking in the mirror and saying, we're going forward. And having the right motives and the right thoughts as you begin your day. And what comes, comes. So the problem with Solomon is he crossed the line and he kept crossing the line and eventually he accepted the line. Like, if you, the moment you accept sin and then you rationalize sin, you just cross more lines. That's why you have to fight against the sin from here to eternity. It can never be acceptable. When you know that God is light and him is no darkness at all, you know you need to choose light. And if you end up in darkness, you know you got to get back to the light. Because if you stay in the darkness long enough, you'll start telling yourself the darkness is light and the light is darkness. And the Bible says, woe to that person. So it's always to stay sharp and know, like, we got to go forward And we're not accepting this. Solomon accepted one foreign wife after another. And then their worldviews began to wear on him. So the last 15 years of his life, as he's moving towards 60 and toward that retirement party, he already had everything, though, so what do you get when he already got everything? He just, he had no fight. He had no fight in him to fight off the sin, the temptations, and all that was, he had no fight. He lost it. He said nothing, he just... You know, I always love the Rocky movies because Rocky always got back up, right? You all know the Rocky movies. It's like, and, and Apollo Creed's like, or even Drago's like, you know, like, but Rocky always got back up. But what makes Roberto Duran so famous? No mas. One of the greatest boxers of all time. You don't even remember the fights he won. You just remember being so frustrated in the middle of a fight. You said, no mas. He quit. And that's when it all goes bad. And I think the key to Solomon's life is he quit. He knew it was right, and he quit trying to move toward what's right. He quit saying this is wrong, and just said, I'm never going to have victory over this. And he just, that's, you cannot do that under any circumstance. Right is right, wrong is wrong, God is not ambiguous, there's no gray area with the Lord, it's absolutes of right and wrong, moral, morally, God is light and has no darkness at all. And this was Solomon's mistake, that many foreign wives... He crossed the line, crossed the line, crossed the line, and eventually he let them build their... He, he built places of idolatry. Like David, you think of... See, David's sin and lust for women uh, hindered his life. 
Solomon's sin and lust for women destroyed his life. Some people can have a glass of wine with dinner. Some people can't have a glass of wine with dinner because it'll wreck them. Do you understand the difference? Some things, David was truly repentant. What are we talking about with David? When the prophet came to him and said, you're the man, what did he say? No, I'm not. He said, yes, I am, and I agree. That was the key. David always accepted reproof and was determined to go forward with what was right. And his life, in a lot of ways, had a lot more obvious sin than Solomon. Solomon's not accused of killing his best friend to get his best friend's wife. David was. But Solomon, David's heart was always with the Lord, even in failure. David did not build places of worship for God's for sacrificing babies and out-of-control lust. And by the time Hezekiah, excuse me, Josiah tore those things down, they existed for four centuries. It's where all the gay, lesbian worship was with the sexual morality on those hills. So it started out with the women and their foreign gods. Four, 400 years later, it's just total debauchery at the lowest level, demeaning to human and the genders that God's given us in the design for sexual intimacy. And only Josiah had the guts or the courage for the next 400 years to take it on, and he did. And then he died in battle at 39. God took him early, spared him what he's going to see. Now, let's just finish the chapter. These are the main applications. So, verse 14, now Solomon raised up an adversary, excuse me, now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. So now Solomon's got trouble from the south. For it happened when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he'd killed every male in Edom in the previous generation. Because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he'd cut down every male in Edom, that Hadad fled to go to Egypt, he and a certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child, and then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and apportioned food for him and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife the sister of his own wife, that is, the sister of Queen Tehophanes. Then the sister of Tehophanes bore him Genubath, his son, whom Tehophanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh, so they're raised in royalty. Verse 21. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, nothing, but do let me go anyways. And God raised up another adversary against him. Rezon, the son of Eladad, who had fled from his lord, had Hadadazer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to him and became a captain over a band of raiders. When David killed those of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus, he was adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. So God has allowed adversaries for Solomon in the south and in the north. He's bookending him with his adversaries, but now the worst one of all comes from within. Verse 26. Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite, some Zerada, whose mother's name was Zerah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man was industrious, made him officer over all the labor force for the house of Joseph. 
He's powerful and he's super capable. Verse 29. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahaziah the Shilonite met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahaziah took hold of the new garment that was on him, tore it into 12 pieces, and he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they've forsaken me. And worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chamosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, because I've made him ruler over, uh, ruler over all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you. Ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what's right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David." And will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishgah, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. This is the life of Solomon, and it's a bad ending, right? I mean, we have to agree, it's, it's a bad ending, just the way it ended, and we don't want to end this way under any circumstance, which means we don't have to because we're all still alive. It was Solomon who would say in his last book that a living dog is better than a dead lion, so we're still alive. And whatever we don't like about yesterday, we can wake up tomorrow and be determined to go forward in a better future with some fresh vision, some fresh goals, clear direction, and just walk the straight and narrow that God has for us and know that God's with us. That's the beauty of being alive. That's the beauty of the gospel of grace, that we get a fresh start every day. Forgive us this day. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So the person who walks in humility wants to do right, receives correction, repents in correction, and shows grace to others who need correction, those people, they're the meek that inherit the earth. They're the ones that rule in eternity, and those are the people we all want to be. But we've got to keep growing. Whatever, whatever's going on in our life, it has to be who we're becoming, not what we're doing. Because that was the great downfall of Solomon. It was about what he was doing and not who he was becoming. So may we be encouraged from the life of Solomon to finish strong, to, to go from glory to glory. It's availed to us through the gospel of grace. So no one in this room, no one listening to this study right now has to settle for this chapter or this ending for our life. We truly can go to glory. It was Solomon who said at the very end of his life that the whole duty of life is to obey God and keep his, to fear God and to keep his commandments. And that's something that's right in front of us on this day. Amen?